Do you know I'm having a problem at the moment? You see, that gets your attention straight away. Did you see that? Everybody suddenly looks at me. I'm having a problem at the moment. Um, I'm having a problem with sleeping uh, because I'm just so excited about what God is doing. So isn't that wonderful? That's a good, good problem to have, sleeping problem when you're excited with what God's doing. We're going to uh, return to our series. We've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you've not been with us on that journey, you can catch up on the series on the web. Uh, because it's been good fun going through that. We've been going through it for quite a while now, uh, and we're still in chapter 1. So we're, we've been working through chapter 1, and we've been using chapter 1 as a kind of index for the rest of the book. And we're going to continue to do that with this series, but we are actually going to start working through the book now. So we actually move over into the real stuff uh, so we're going to be looking uh, over the next few months uh, or weeks, I don't know yet, over uh, one of the biggest themes of the book, which starts in chapter 1, verse 18, and goes through to chapter 4, verse 21, and the clue is up there. We're going to be talking about church unity, and uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to give you the series overview first, just to show you how well thought out this series is. And because, first of all, what we have is Paul's plea for unity, which is what I want to look at today. But then he goes on to give us four different ways, four ways, sorry, in which unity can be achieved. Firstly, in chapter one, uh, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the centrality of the cross. Uh, secondly, in chapter two, preferring spiritual wisdom over worldly wisdom. Chapter three, honoring all for the role that they play in building the church. That's in chapter 3. And then chapter 4, treating leaders appropriately. We're going to spend absolutely months on that one. Okay. Uh, So thanks to the NIV application commentary for those headings. It's just helped to sort of separate that out. But each of these four areas are a series in themselves and could each take many weeks or months. Uh, But I want to try and cover the whole lot reasonably quickly. And so hopefully the overview will help you to see the big picture of where we're going and get the emphasis that I think that God wants us to have as a church at the moment. Because, you know, God is at the moment building us together. That's what's happening. That's what God's doing at the moment with us, the church. He's building us together. He's shaping us, forming us into the local church that he wants us to be for Sully Hole. That's what God's doing. If you ask me what is God doing at the moment, I'd say that's what he's doing. He's building us, shaping us, molding us into the shape that he wants us to be. So uh, unity is what makes building together possible. So it's really important that we understand what it is. So first of all, I'm going to read the passage to you that we're going to be looking at today. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 10 to 17, but we're going to focus on verse 10, but I'm going to put it in context First of all, and this is Paul's appeal for unity. And if you, if you follow through, uh, I don't know if the heading's not still up there at the moment, but if you follow through the headings, you'll see that Paul refers to each of them, for those that are interested. He refers to each of them in this passage anyway. He continues this kind of index idea and all the themes he then follows through on. So chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, 
one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, and still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Christ crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Oh, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for the relevance of what has been written 2,000 years ago. We can apply it directly to our lives today. We want to thank you that your word lives. It lives for the rest of eternity. We believe your word will be filled, fulfilled utterly. And we just pray, Lord, for your anointing on your word. Just open our eyes. Help us to see the whole of the Bible today, the whole of what you're saying to us in this whole subject of unity. In Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 10 is what we're going to focus on today. Um, and it's, I appeal to you, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the authority and the name, that's literally uh, what he's saying, the authority in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you all of you agree with one another, and that in what you say, and there be no divisions, that's the word schisms, that means he doesn't want you tearing one another apart, he doesn't want us ripping people apart, uh, he says, but rather that you be perfectly united, he says he's actually calling them to come back together, because they've been ripped apart, come back together and be mended That's literally what he's saying. Come back together and be mended in mind and thought. So that's not just in the way that you think, but also in action. Be mended together. Be brought back together. It's quite an echo on this mic. Is it it just me, or could you turn it down a little? And, you know, I find it interesting that Paul makes no judgment here as he sets it up to discuss unity, he makes no judgments here about the rights or wrongs of anybody's particular argument. He makes no command or imposition on the church. In fact, the authority that he uses when he quotes the name of Jesus is to call them to unity. He doesn't make any any uh, value statements about any of the arguments. In fact, at no point throughout the rest of the book does Paul ever side with any particular party or even spell out exactly what the arguments were about. So we know, for example, that some people were arguing about who was the best leader. And this happens all the time in this church, I know, but who was the favourite? You know, uh, some people are even getting emotional over this very (laughs) subject and theme. Uh, But that was one argument that we knew, but... uh, why this mattered, or how it arose, or even who was right, we just don't know, because Paul never tells us and never unpacks the argument. But I guess the people he was writing to knew well enough, but we don't have the information. But I just find it interesting. I mean, isn't it so opposite to how we do things sometimes? Now, how many times has it been the argument itself 
I don't know whether it's in family or in your office at work, it's the argument itself that fascinates us. Well, no, all the ins and outs and who's right and who's wrong. That's what's most important. We can get obsessed about rightness, can't we? Or, or being right, especially if you're male, I think. Rightness. I, I need to be right. But Paul, it just appeals to them for, for agreement. And, you know, I think, I don't think this is a mistake. I don't think this is, he just forgot, he just forgot to sort of spell out the arguments for us. I think this is deliberate. I think it's providential. Because the fact that we don't know the content of the arguments or about who was right or who was wrong helps us. And anyway, how many times do arguments really matter anyway? So often we argue over silly and immature things, don't we? Anybody married here? Anybody argue over anything silly? You've got brothers and sisters. You just argue. Why is it that the smallest things make the biggest arguments? And then who's right? And that's actually the big thing. Who's right and who's wrong? But Paul's handling of this problem shows us that unity in the church is something that transcends argument, transcends even doctrine. He mentions baptism as a possible area of dispute, but it it transcends that. He says, I want you to agree. It transcends different views or interpretation, different ways of doing things, or even a preference for particular personalities. I like Paul, and well, he likes Apollos, and that kind of thing. It transcends that. He says, I'm calling you to unity. Never mind the arguments. Come to this place of agreement. That's what I'm going to exercise my authority on. Because in the end, what holds us together must be more important than what separates us. And we must... What we agree on must be more powerful than what we disagree about. And I guess that's the biblical definition of unity in a nutshell. What holds us together has got to be more important than what separates us. But what right has Paul to call for unity? Why ignore all the arguments? Why unity? Why the call for it? Can't we just fight all the time and enjoy a good debate? I mean, where is the theological basis for this? And that's what I want to look at today uh, in presenting a case for unity. See, unity wasn't Paul's invention. It wasn't something he just thought up because he thought, well, this would be good for the church. Uh, Unity, or perhaps oneness, goes right to the heart of God. (coughs) And the big story of unity runs through the whole Bible. You can trace it through the whole Bible, and it starts with God himself. So I just want to trace that story through uh, with you, the whole Bible, okay? I'm going to do the whole Bible today uh, reasonably quickly, but we're going to start with God. You see, because God is our prime example of unity right from the beginning, Right from the beginning in Genesis, we can see this from the first line, the first words. It says, in the beginning, there was God. One God. God existed. God pre-existed. God continues to exist. 
But then, by verse 26 of the same chapter of Genesis, we see that there's a plurality in this unity. So God says these strange words, because in verse 1 it says, in the beginning there was God, singular. And then by verse 26 he's saying, let us make man in our image. Plurality, there's more than one, but there's only one God. And this is, right at the beginning, pointing to the fact of the Trinity, that there are three in one. God, but in three parts. One God, but three functions, some people describe it as. One God, but three personalities. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The great mystery that none of us can get our heads around, and we've all tried many different ways of trying to explain it and understand it. But they're one, but they're three. And they perfectly complement one another. They perfectly agree together, and they perfectly prefer one another. We see this, especially in Jesus. It's, it's the clearest there, if you like. So at the transfiguration, for example, we have the Father rumbling from heaven saying, this is my Son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Now we have the Father preferring the Son. Listen to him. God the Father says, listen to Jesus. And again, we have in Hebrews the Father commanding his angels to worship the Son. Worship him. He commands them to worship him, to worship and honour the Son. The Father, again, preferring the Son. And then we have Jesus, the Son. And he comes to us and he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. And then when he teaches his disciples about prayer, he says, when you pray, I want you to pray to the Father and honour his name. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Perfect unity, preferring. Preferring the Son points to the Father. The Father points to the Son. And then we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel, according to Jesus, will remind us of everything that Jesus says. And he'll only tell us what he's heard from the Father and the Son talking together. And it says that the Holy Spirit will always seek to glorify the Son in all things. He will always seek to prefer the Son, the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's almost comedic, isn't it? It's like Laurel and Hardy trying to get through a door, saying, after you, no, I insist, after you. And the father saying to the son, no, after you, I prefer you. And the son saying to the father, I prefer you. And the spirit is saying, I prefer them both. <laughs> Look at them, focus on them. Perfect unity. Perfect preference. It's a tremendous picture. It's an amazing example for us making sense of all sorts of things that are commanded throughout the Bible and the New Testament, esteeming one another more highly than the other. That's how we are to be. Like the Father is to the Son, the Son is to the Spirit, and and all the, and, and so goes on. It helps us to understand unity. And there's a command that makes sense suddenly in Romans 12.10. Paul says this as a model for church. He says, Be devoted to one another, in love, honour one another 
above yourselves. Prefer one another. Love one another. At the exclusion of yourself, put others first. Just like in heaven. Just like the Godhead, the Trinity. Be like God in this. Represent him well here on earth. You are his body. Be like him. The God who is three but one. It's how he set it up. It's the example that he's given us. Even from the creation of man. So in verse 26 of Genesis 1 again, um, he says, let us make man in our own image. And then it says, he made them, plural, male and female. Now, I'm not even going to get into the theology of that and what that means about God and all that. But he says, us make male and female. One man and his marriage, Adam and Eve. So this is the the next part of the story. We've got two people, they're made separately. Uh, uh, Two people, sorry, (laughs) I'm getting lost in my own thoughts here. We've got two people, but they come from one. You see, Eve, it says, came out of Adam. In Genesis chapter 2, are you following me? Genesis chapter 2, it says, Bone of my bone. Adam speaking about Eve says, Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. They became two, but they became one again. Because what happens then is, it says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh again. So God made Adam one man. He took Eve out of Adam, made two people. He brought them together in marriage. They became one flesh. They became one. Can you see? It's one. It's one. Two becoming one. It's the Trinity all over again. Their bodily union. Marriage is a reflection, again, of the unity of God, which is why God hates the ripping apart of divorce. He, he hates it. He feels it. It hurts. It's a ripping. It's a breaking. And it's why we're told not to commit sexual immorality. We're told to, to be united to one woman. One man and one woman. Unity. Not ripping apart and bringing back together with another partner, another mate, another situation. And of course, right at the beginning, this was a perfect union. Adam and Eve, united together, one, but one with God. One with God, it's almost like a trinity on earth. God and man, perfect, a perfect unity, because Adam and Eve had not committed any sin. That's how God set it up, that's what he wanted. No sin, so they walked in the beauty and the innocence of this trinity. The fall of man brought about the first division. It ripped us apart from our relationship with God. Sin divided us. Sin divided us, cut us off from relationship with God. But it also marred the husband and wife relationship too. 
So God warns Eve about this, and he says in Genesis chapter 3, sorry, there's going to be lots of verses today, and I couldn't put them all up, there was just too many. So trust me, I am reading from the Bible. But in Genesis chapter 3, it says, Eve, God says to Eve, he says, your desire will be for your husband, and he's going to rule over you. And then he goes on, and, and then in the New Living Translation says, your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's right. Disunity, fracture domination and control, the problems in marriages and other relationships are entirely due to sin and our broken relationship with God. Something fundamental was broken right at the beginning. The trinity with God was broken, the friendship with God, and that affected the marriage. It brought division. It brought wrong desires. It brought wrong attitudes into the marriage, into us through sin. See, there's no unity between darkness and light. There's no unity between sin and the holiness of God. There can't be. The two cannot coexist, cannot exist together. And you see, the darkness was great. And the sin of man, it says, after the fall went from bad to worse. In Genesis chapter 6, it says that God looked down on the earth and he saw that the wickedness of man was great. And that every inclination of the thought and the thought of his heart was only evil all the time. Isn't that a dreadful description? When God looks down, he says, I I don't see the external appearance, I see the heart and I know that every inclination of the heart of man is evil all of the time. So God decided to perform a different kind of unity. He decided that to destroy mankind under a great flood that would cover the whole earth, except for one man and his family, that's Noah. So this is the next part of the story, it's Noah. Noah, God saw, was a righteous man, so he decided to call Noah and his family to himself and put them under his protection. That's amazing. One man and his family and the rest of the human race was wiped out. One man, one family was called to ride out the destruction of the flood in the ark. One family who God would start again with. One man would receive God's first covenant. After the flood, God promised never to flood the earth again, but that he would allow man to increase in number and multiply. And God said to Noah, he says, as long as earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. That's a wonderful promise. It's in Genesis chapter 8. It will never cease. Did you know that? That God is in charge of how long the world is allowed to continue. God is in charge of weather systems. God is in in charge of destiny when things start and when things end. He's in charge of it all. God decrees the times and the seasons. God orders the days and the nights and the years. Not man. Not nuclear threat from North Korea. Not pollution or global warming. Warming. (laughs) Slip of the tongue. God does. Here it is, there's the promise made to man through Noah. As long as earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, 
will never cease until God says, wow. Not that we should be complacent about these other things. We need to pray. We need to pray for those that are in authority. We need to pray for our our world decisions are being made at the moment. We need to pray for peace. But God decides. And of course, Noah was a kind of forerunner of another man and his family that was to become a nation. And we're talking, of course, about Abraham, or Abraham as he was known, Abraham as he was known at the beginning, one man and one nation. Again, we have oneness, we have unity. Now, Abraham was a pagan man. He had no background with God, as far as we know. But for some reason that none of us can kind of work out unless we've experienced ourselves, he was called out by God. And he says, you, you, come on. But what about the rest? You know, those people, are not, no, you, I'm choosing you. He called him out. He says he was called out by God. He was chosen by him. And in that calling, it seems like they hardly knew each other yet. And God made this amazing promise to Abraham. He says in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. Can you imagine that being the first thing that God ever says to you? But that's what he said to Abraham and he says it to us as well through Abraham as we know the New Testament teaches us that. I will make your name great. I will make a name for myself through you and bless the nations. And so God calls one man to form one nation that he would bless, and that was called Israel. A man who would battle with unity and division throughout his life. And, you know, even within a couple of chapters, we find a violent quarrel breaking out between Abraham's servants and the servants of Lot, who was his nephew. And it seems that both men had prospered so much because of God's blessing that they'd run out of land. They'd run out of space because God had just blessed them so much with cattle and and, and riches and fields of, of produce. They'd just run out of land. So this dispute starts up between their relative servants. And at this time, Abraham shows himself to be a peacemaker. Now, Jesus says later on that those who are peacemakers are blessed by God. I just thought I'd throw that in. Those that are peacemakers are blessed by God. If you want to be blessed by God, be a peacemaker wherever you are and whatever your situation. Abraham was blessed by God as a peacemaker. And Abraham resolves the dispute, how? Well, he refuses to fight. That's how he resolves the dispute. In Genesis chapter 13, it says this. This is the, this is the way that Abraham resolves the situation. He's, Abraham says to Lot, he says, let's not have any quarreling. It's the same word or similar word to the one that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. So I don't want you, I've heard that there's quarreling amongst you. He says, no quarreling. Let's not have any quarreling between me and you or between your servants and mine because we're close relatives. We're family. It's not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, well, I'll go to the left. 
Abraham was a peacemaker in the situation. And sometimes, you know, sadly, parting company is, a, is the only way to stop a quarrel. It's not what we want, it's not what we prefer, but it's the only way to bring peace. It's, it's disgraceful for brothers to quarrel. It's an embarrassment. And it's a humiliation for the rest of the family. Let's not do that to ourselves, you know. Lot, we are obviously going in different directions. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, well, I'll go to the left. Let's not quarrel, we're family. Sometimes the one who refuses to fight is the one that brings peace. And it's the only way that unity can be found. The agreement came in this situation because they agreed to part company. Actually, it's just maturity. We're not going to resolve this. We're going in different directions. It's probably best that we do that. Amen? But Abraham doesn't do so well when it comes to God's promise for a son. He grows impatient with God's timetable. Anybody ever got impatient with God's timetable? Do you know the amount of time I said, it's all right for you, Lord, you sit in eternity, but look, I've only got so many years. (laughs) And they seem to be getting longer, shorter, I mean. (laughs) Well, Abraham got impatient with God's timetable and he ended up conceiving Ishmael, not through his wife, but through his wife's servant. Now, Ishmael is is described like this. It's not a very flattering description, It's in Genesis chapter 16, verse 12. It describes Ishmael like this. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility to all his brothers. Wow. See, God's promise to Abraham was for a son through his wife, Sarah, In being impatient and trying to do it his own way, Abraham ended up fracturing his family and gave birth to a competing family of nations, if you read through the rest of the story, that disputed and fought with the Jewish people, perhaps even up until the present day. Many people believe that Ishmael led to the forming of the Arab nations and that this was where the fracture or the dispute between the Arab nations and the Jewish nations started. But through God's grace, and through his promise, and the faithfulness of his promise, came another man through Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was a king. And here we have the first king of Israel, the first man and his kingship, one man and his kingship, David. Let me just talk about David, and then we're going to talk about Jesus, and then we're almost done, okay? So we've got David now. David, he was the younger son in the family. But he was specifically chosen by God, and God kind of leapfrogged over the older brothers and preferred David. And if you're the youngest, you know, you always get left behind, you always get left out. Well, that didn't happen here. David was the one that was brought in from the field, and Samuel says, that's the one. He's the one that I prefer. He's the one that I chose. 
And the reason for that is that David had an undivided heart. It's another way of talking about unity, undivided, it's one. God said about him, he says, I've found David, son of Jesse, who's a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do because his heart is for me. He's after me with all of his heart. And the unity of heart that David had with God led to an unusual covenant which God made with David. It's unusual because it was completely unconditional. Completely unconditional. No conditions at all. God says, I'm, I'm going to do this. Whatever you do, David, I'm going to do this anyway. Isn't that amazing? Completely unconditional. So nothing to do with David's performance. No conditions on a, a, a be, his obedience for its fulfillment. So many other conditions, other things that God said were. But this was completely unconditional. And this promise was based entirely on God's faithfulness to perform it. Isn't that wonderful? Don't we need God to perform things? Because conditions don't work too well with us, yeah? We need him just to be faithful. (coughs) It's perhaps an indication, through David and this covenant, is an indication of the promise of the grace of God that this covenant previewed. That was to come. See, God's promise to David, together with the whole nation of Israel, was that the Messiah, that is Jesus Christ, would come through his family line and the tribe of Judah would establish a kingdom that would endure forever. That was God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now the amazing thing is, is that David sinned terribly. He made some terrible mistakes. Anybody? He did. He made some terrible things, but God was still faithful to him. Isn't that wonderful? It's just so encouraging. I mean, at one point, God's wrath to David led to the death of one of his sons. Because David did something he shouldn't have done. But God was still faithful to his covenant. Which led, of course, through David's line, to one man and his death, who's our wonderful Saviour, Jesus. One man and his death, Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. We've, of course, been talking about Jesus all the way through this. I hope you realise that. But this is where it's all been leading to. Jesus. And I emphasise his death because it was through Jesus' death, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them, him. Bringing us back together. Repairing the tear. Bringing reparation with God. We are reconciled. We are reconnected. We're brought back into relationship with God. The relationship that was severed through the fall of man, through sin, made one again With God. Through the cross, we are literally united with Christ. We're made one with God again. Isn't that good news? We don't have to be apart from God. We can be in relationship with Him. We can be completely at peace in that relationship. He's not scowling at us. He's not frowning every time we mess up. He just loves us. He's completely faithful. There are no conditions. Just like David. Just like the covenant God made to David. 
It's the same with Jesus, the new covenant. We're united with Christ, first in his death, our old lives gone, buried, dealt with, and then through the resurrection, raised to new life in Christ. And this has two immediate unifying effects. First of all, in our vertical relationship, our relationship between God and man. Second, in our horizontal relationship, our relationship with other people who are also in relationship with God. Vertical and horizontal, the cross. God uniting us with himself, bringing unity with one another. Through the cross, we're united with God, but we're brought into this new kind of unity. It's a community, and it's called the church. Through Christ, we're brought into this community, a, a community which spreads throughout time, through eternity, through the whole world. A community. So Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, Now you are the body of Christ, and every one of you is a part of it brought into that unity of one body. So what Paul is saying is you're the church and you're Christ to the world. Each of you represents Jesus wherever you go, in your family, in your place of work, in your neighborhood, in your leisure activities. You are united together and you're Christ wherever you go. That's the promise. And there's something incredibly important about unity in the body of Christ because of all that. Because we are Christ, his body on earth. I mean, is Christ divided? Paul asks. We just read that. Is he? How can he be? I mean, if he was, it wouldn't work very well. A body doesn't work very well if it's divided. If one part of my body decides to go over here and the other over here, I get into trouble. Is Christ divided? No. How can he be? Jesus puts it like this. He says in Luke chapter 11, he says, a divided kingdom cannot stand. You can't grow together, you can't be together, it cannot function together without unity. A divided kingdom cannot stand. Churches can't stand when there's division. You know, and this is so crucial that in the last hours, as Jesus sweats drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, what would you be thinking about? What would you be praying about? Well, this is what Jesus was praying about. He was praying about unity in the church, in his last moments. Wow! He's just about to go to the cross, and that's what he's praying about. This is what he prays. He says that they may be one, Father, as we are one. The example that we are in the Godhead to the whole world. Let them be like that together as church. Now I think this has got a wider application than just one church. It it definitely has. It's talking about the body of Christ. But if the local church is divided, what hope is there for the rest of the people of God? So unity was never Paul's idea. It's a crucial part of one story that runs through the whole Bible of unification of man with God and man with man in the church. And you see, God hates division. I mean, it's that strong. 
He hates division. It's contrary to him. It's opposed to all he stands for. It directly speaks against and dishonors Christ and the price that he paid on the cross. I hope you can see that from what I've said today. He hates it. And this is why Paul reserves some of his strongest words for those that cause disunity. Writing to Titus, he says in chapter 3, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. Wow, that's a bit strong. Warn them once, twice, and then have nothing to do with them. Divisiveness in the church. In Romans 16, 17, Paul says, watch out for people who cause divisions. Have nothing to do with them. Wow, it's not very Christian. And divisiveness in the church is one of the very few biblical reasons for excommunicating people from the community of believers. It's so serious. God hates division and warns us against it. But he loves unity and rewards it with his presence. I want to finish just by reading a very well-known psalm. Psalm 133. You can turn to it if you like. It's only short. But David wrote this. And if you read the story of David, you know that he had a lot of experience of unity and disunity in his kingdom all the way through his reign. And this is what he wrote. He says, How good... And pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. He says, it's like precious oil poured on the head running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, beard, down on, went Welsh then, didn't I? Uh, running down on Aaron's beard, uh, down on the collar of his robe. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows, or in fact the word is stronger, it's commands or orders his blessing. For there the Lord orders his blessing. Look at that. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. God's people, that's one degree of unity. Live together, that's another degree of unity. In unity, oh, unity. He says it three times. Unity, trinity. How good and pleasant it is. It's like, he says, it's like precious oil. Precious oil is a picture of the manifest presence of God. It's a picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We see this on the day of Pentecost when the disciples were all met together in the upper room and it says that they were all in one accord. They were all in wonderful agreement. And what happens when they came to that place? They'd been scattered before. When they came to that place says that there was a sound like a, a violent wind, a rushing wind suddenly ripped out of heaven and the Holy Spirit fell on each of them and flames of fire appeared, his manifest presence, and they all started speaking in tongues. Wow. There God commands a blessing. It's like holy oil being poured on a priest. He says it's as if, he says it's as if the Jew from Mount Hermon was falling on Mount Zion. Now, geography is not my strong point, so I've looked this up, because, of course, the dew from Mount Hermon doesn't fall on Mount Zion because they're over 100 miles apart. And with a height of over 9,000 feet, it's the highest mountain in the region, and it's often snow-capped, Mount Hermon. 
But Mount Hermon was lush throughout the year with heavy dew, whereas Mount Zion was desperately dry during the summer months when no rain fell at all. It's like, it's like there's been a climate change. The natural climate just isn't the same. There's a, a different kind of climate. When there's unity uh, and God's commanding blessing, the climate changes. That which is dry and bony and there's no fruit, there's no uh, lushness, it, it's changed. The presence of God comes and it's changed. There's such fruitfulness, times of refreshing come from the presence of God. Mount Hermon becomes Mount Zion. Wow. If we live in unity, the blessing of God is commanded. The manifest, tangible presence of God with us and all that goes with his presence. Fullness of joy, healing, peace, hope, freedom. Where the presence of the Lord is, there's freedom. Unity must be valued and protected by us all. Divisive behavior can't be allowed. If we're going to live under the blessing that God commands, we need to guard our relationships. We need to keep short accounts with God and with one another to maintain the unity of this local body. I've got to say, the reason we're doing this subject isn't because I think we've got a big problem. It's because it's the next thing in the book. But also, it's providential because God is building something here. And he's wanting us to be united in building together. But I'm excited about what God's doing. And uh, when we worship, the presence of God just comes so quickly. Have you noticed? It's because there's unity. Incredible blessing. The Holy Spirit delights in blessing unity. And I'm about as much blessing as possible. Is that all right with you? Let's just stand and just ask God to bless us.